Welcome to Season 6, Episode 9 of Fire Away, Rudner Law's online show focused on the employment law issues that matter to you. My name is Brittany Taylor. I am an employment lawyer, partner at Rudner Law, and your host of this episode of Fire Away. Fire Away streams live online every month, and if you missed an episode or want to watch one again, they are always available on our YouTube channel, Facebook page, and our website. Today, I'm joined by John Rodriguez, the founder of Empathic Security Cultures, LLC, based in Austin, Texas. John brings over 40 years of corporate security experience into today's discussion. He has a passion for security culture development, mentoring, mental health, workplace psychological safety, and mitigating hostile environmental risks. These are all such crucial topics that significantly intertwine with employment law. So I'm very excited to talk to John today. So let's get started. All right. Well, let's start with talking about empathic security cultures. I'm really interested to know with all of your experience, all of your background, what led you to found this business? Great. So I worked uh, 40 years with uh, General Motors, Levi Strauss, Kimberly Clark, and uh, Cardinal Health and a couple of others. And I've always liked uh, psychology and social psychology and now um, studying uh, human neuroscience and the human connection of how people interact at work makes the world a difference uh, related to success of a company. You know, a company's underlying principle is to make the most money with the least cost, right? So treating people as people and working and supporting them to get the most out of them every day uh, is something that I've always enjoyed. My specialty is in corporate security. I'm a generalist. I've done everything from corporate investigations. I've done over 2,000 interviews, workplace violence incidents, over 400 in my career. So everything that could impact a company's employees and a company's assets I've been involved in over my career. But when you look at security or corporate security, you look at it as two parts, science and art. And, and the science are things like your access control system, something as simple as your badge and your badge reader, your video system, um, your uh, other technology, your manuals, your policies, they're all uh, important and they're all very complex to do them right. And, and you as, as a, an attorney, you, you know that and the rest of your, your audience. But the other part is the human connection or the art of human connection with people. I think the first part is very complex. You have to know what you're doing or else you could get in trouble. Right. But relative to the human experience, because we're all different and we all have physical health and mental health. And we'll talk about mental health when we talk about psychological safety in a couple of minutes. That challenge of how do we um, work with employees to develop a security culture and as simply defined as I can is how we treat each other at work. Okay. And that goes to basic respect and, and courteous, courteous, courtesy and care right. at work, right? If business leaders can look at mental health and psychological safety 
and respectful workplace a little bit different and see the value of that and not seeing them as something warm and fuzzy or squishy or soft skills. I hate the word soft skills because they're really the hardest skills uh, to do, right? So that's kind of the, the, the reason that I saw a gap and an opportunity to leave corporate and focus on helping peers in corporate security people that are responsible for security in their company and business leaders as a whole of the value of seeing what how important security is like safety is okay. in your overall company culture because you can't have a safety culture or a security culture without having a very solid foundational corporate culture of how we treat each other, right? Um, And I also, real quick, you know, my philosophy is the bigger the company, the more complex it is. And you really have three cultures, the C-suite culture, how they see things, then the mid-level, the VP or regional presidents, and really the site leader of an office or of a manufacturing site or a warehouse, that leader how they talk about safety and security and how often and the tone and the emphasis and the care and the response. It's really a team of teams and multiple cultures um, that uh, I help businesses with. Great. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, I, I I think it's really, really interesting that you saw this kind of gap, if you will, and created this business to, to, like you said, kind of almost re-educate, um, employers, companies that, that these are not, I, I like what you said about they're, they're not soft skills. They're, they are, they're hard skills. They're difficult skills to master. And, uh, we talked about this before when we, when we met before the show is that, that distinction between the science uh, the you know the the practical components that you need to do to achieve compliance versus the art the the kind of human side of it that that really resonated with me as an employment lawyer because we we say that all the time to our clients right that you have got your practical legal obligations right you've got your requirement to have health and safety policies and your harassment and violence programs and you can do those and you can tick those boxes and say, yes, I've done what I need to do. But there's also the the human component uh, and you can do everything correct, like everything technically correct, but still have really unhappy employees, low retention rate, high risk of harassment and bullying in the workplace. Um, those types of issues can still be present if you're not taking that kind of holistic approach. And I really like when you're talking about this overarching concept of a security culture, that it encompasses this idea of a of a holistic approach where you're, you're kind of merging these two components of the science and the art. So I want to talk a little bit more about how that's beneficial to employers, Um, you know, because a lot of people, I think when you're running a business, as you said, the goal really is, look, look, we're here to make money. (laughs) That's what we're here to do. So why should an employer pause and say to themselves, I should do a little bit more than just taking those boxes and complying with the statutory requirements or whatever is going to get me across the technical finish line? What's the advantage for employers there? Maximum engagement, maximum performance of every employee should be the goal. We're not going to reach it because we're all different. We all have um, issues in life, but with the right corporate culture and consistency over time, 
the more employees feel that they can trust leadership, and that's the f- big foundation of a, of a culture, is trust. Uh, and that takes time. I call it time and timing at the frontline level, the manager level. But back to the, the benefits is full engagement, uh, lower absenteeism, lower turnover, talent retention. You get a top performer that is working at a site where a manager or a coworker is a bully and maybe not even with me if 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 you're working with somebody and that other person treats you Brittany badly over time that impacts me that impacts all the employees because we're always watching we're always aware and that can even even if it's not a direct victim or receiver of a harassing environment uh, it, it impacts a lot of people and i can say i don't like how they treated Brittany, you know and i don't need to put up with it am i next so i've got three head, uh, recruiters calling me and i think you know spouse or boyfriend or mom or dad what do you all think and they're going to say you're too good i mean go to where you're happy and where you're treated with respect in a safe and secure workplace so engagement, uh, presenteeism is kind of tied to what I just said. I'm there physically, I'm producing, I'm, I'm doing, I'm meeting my metric, whatever the metric is, but I know I could do more with innovation, with ideas, with helping somebody else, being compassionate to my coworker and lending a hand versus the psychological threat of being harassed uh, or threatened, and, and neuroscientists have proven that a psychological threat is just as impactful to the brain and the body as you know somebody coming after you with a hammer or with a stick. It, it's proven. So psychological safety, I think, is now at the forefront of business leaders to understand. And you can argue, you can argue just in a dollars and and cents perspective of the cost of not having a good corporate culture. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I think you've hit on all the really salient points. And I think we see those uh, those similarities. We were talking right before the show um, about how here in Ontario, our occupational health and safety legislation specifically recognizes that it's not just physical hazards that an employer has an obligation to um, ensure employee safety surrounding. It's also issues of harassment and bullying and workplace violence. So like you were saying, recognizing that the psychological, the mental health hazards are just as significant. Um, So I know you work with businesses um, to to kind of support them in achieving or trying to achieve kind of psychologically safe workplace. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, the kind of support that you offer to companies? Sure. As a generalist, as I mentioned, uh, whatever need they may have. I've done just about everything under the sun, travel risk management, supply chain, and intellectual property rights, training, awareness. But my 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 love and my passion is culture development. I'm not a cybersecurity expert. That's a different field, a different profession. And they have their own perspective of security culture. And, you know, in a simple example, it's, training people not to uh, click the wrong link to shut down or get a malware uh, system, right? So I'll help companies in any way, any of those areas. And one of the ones that is often 
requested is the culture and psychological safety as it ties to workplace violence prevention and bullying. So it's a long journey that the leadership has to understand and be fully engaged in. And you know, one of one part of that is regarding mental health and mental wellness. Um, the companies that are fortunate to have EAP or employee assistance programs that can help as a benefit to the workforce. You know, that's one of the first questions I ask. And it's part of multiple pieces. The compliance pieces that what you mentioned a while ago, absolutely critical. And it ha- it's, it's the, the backbone, the foundation. But really how we treat people is the, the brain and the soul. And one of the things talking about changing culture and or establishing culture starts in the first hour of employment. And usually most companies have new hire orientation or some semblance of this is the company, this is where you're going to work, this is where the bathroom is, where you're going to get paid, where to park. If companies start thinking about establishing their values of this is a respectful workplace, no cussing, no screaming, no graffiti, no vandalism. Uh, we want people to speak up. We want to hold people accountable. Your opportunity to start your culture starts right away. But it's not just tick the box as, we, as we've seen, right? And some, some companies say, I have a wonderful extensive manual. It sits on the shelf, kind of right. like a cri- crisis, uh, crisis uh, manual that uh, when something happens, they, it's, they pull out the dust and uh, half the people are already gone from the company. So the compliance mentality, that's the other thing that I stress when I have an engagement with a company is you should be willing to look at it as part of your culture. And that means frequent discussion, modeling it at those three levels, C-suite, mid-senior and frontline, especially are you supporting, and, and I'll, one of the things I'll ask them is, who do you think the hardest, what position or what title in a company has the hardest job? Is it the C-suite, HR, the director of a site? It's really the first line supervisor or team leader because he or she uh, has to make their numbers and report to the pressure of making their metrics or their numbers and dealing with personalities. If it's two people or 15 people on the team, so as part of this program, you know, that's one of the things I look into. So I, I dive deep into the weeds a lot more, way beyond the, your locks and your cameras and your gates work. That's basic. And, you know, you can read about that stuff. Right. The other thing is, is, is impacting people, their perception, uh, their willingness to share information. So with workplace violence, one of the things that people challenge struggle with is the time that somebody knows that there's a threat or that somebody's ex-husband is coming to the plant to confront somebody from the time they an employee knows that it can be the victim or a co-worker to the time they report it to leadership so leadership can take action that's what a culture will do tighten up the timeline because those employees trust us we've told them repeatedly why we want them to report information so the company can protect them and everybody else. So 
it's a long discussion on program development, but I kind of hit on some of the pieces that, that we look at that are kind of a different perspective in, in, in what I do and what I've learned over all these years. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, you know, what really resonated with me as you were speaking is this is is kind of this idea of I love the the um, the image of pulling the dusty manual off the shelf, because I think that that happens a lot. Right. You write a policy. It's a great policy. But then you put it on a shelf. You're not living it. You're not working the policy um, and you forget what it says. And it's not being updated enough that it becomes something that's actually part of, of kind of your workplace culture. Um, yeah. You know, here in Ontario, we have a requirement that these policies are reviewed and updated at least once a year, but as often as necessary. And and this is something that we tell our clients all the time is it's not enough just to write the policy. You have to act in accordance with the policy. There's no point in having rules and having procedures if even like you were saying, like the, the top line people, the middle line people, even the front line people, if nobody knows about the policy, if nobody is complying with the policy, what was the point of having a policy in the first place, right? It loses its effectiveness in terms of its ability to actually actually govern and, and assist uh, in situations like what you were describing when you have an actual emergency. Um, and that's, that's also where training comes in, right, is, is how important it is to make sure that your staff is aware of right. how to respond in the event of an emergency or who, what to do if they're being harassed, who do they talk to? Who do they go to? What does harassment even look like, right? I think like that, that's the thing that um, that we take for granted that people will understand what that looks like. But the average person may not know what harassment right. looks like in a legal context, right? So I, th I think you've touched on a lot of those things is like this, this education, the living the policy mentality, which I find really, really interesting. Um, right. Sorry, go, sorry, go ahead. And it's not hard to do if you embrace it and you live it and you believe it. That sometimes the gap is at the C-suite, at the corporate level, that they're, they see the people as concepts, the, the old Jack Welch, GE mentality of force ranking and, and that stuff. Those leaders at the C-suite level that are empathic, that are more compassionate, that get mental health, and are vulnerable to maybe even lead by example and ask HR who often owns that program or benefits, you know, what are we doing more? They may see, a, there's a white paper by Deloitte and Forbes had an article and the Entrepreneur Magazine had articles on the business cost of mental health. But beyond that, that's the science part, you know, just the caring, um, loving for you know your fellow man component sometimes the more power a leader has the more they look at their, their cognitive brain kicks in as concepts versus the empathic and the the compassionate piece but you have those front lines leaders at a site that's a director or manager they're at the front line of the battle they're often more compassionate and empathic because they see it and they're close and they if they feel it if you can find those business leaders, if you have 10 sites across the country, find the ones that get it, the, the empathic business leaders, partner with them, and you can develop a range of metrics. And a simple example is we're going to implement these new, this new program on mental health and security and safety. And these are the things we're going to measure, like the ones I mentioned, absenteeism, turnover, 
presenteeism, engagement and feedback. And in six months and in 12 months, we will do uh, pulse surveys or employee engagement surveys, knowing that not everybody may be fully truthful because you're on the journey of solidifying or improving trust. You know, you want the truth from employees and some are going to tell you the truth. Some may not. Um, but the trust journey is, is parallel with growing your culture. So you can measure improvements, just a simple thing of absenteeism and turnover and the cost of uh, new hire replacement. Most businesses can, I think I have a new software here that uh, uh, reads my, my gestures. But anyway, I'm getting off on tangents. Uh, go ahead. I'll turn it back to you. You know what? I actually I was thinking if this is what I wanted to ask you while while you were talking is you were mentioning um, you know the importance of compassion and accessing those kind of the frontline workers um, who may have more uh, kind of an empath empathetic connection at that level. And I wanted to talk to you about one of the services that I know that you do offer, which is assistance with with training to conduct investigations in a compassionate manner, right? And investigations are something that just are a reality that employers are going to have to deal with, right? Whether we're talking about workplace harassment or violence, or whether we're just talking about employee misconduct uh, in the workplace, like this is this is just a reality that a lot of businesses are going to have to, to face. Um, and so I was curious to get your perspective on the the value of this kind of compassionate interview style and what what does it bring to an investigation and what advantages are there for a company to to really think about investigating or interviewing in a compassionate manner perfect so i teach when you have any kind of issue you have two objectives that's to find the complete truth and to protect the culture and even make it regenerative. And that's how we treat everybody that we interview or interact as investigators. Once we take the, the charge of conducting an investigation, the people we interview, you know, you look at it from a neuroscience perspective or a psychology perspective, you know, we represent authority and a threat. Even if I didn't do something, it's like getting stopped by the police, the lights are behind you, your adrenaline starts flowing, right? And you know you didn't do anything wrong, but you're really at their mercy. And they may, you may get a warning or maybe you'll get a ticket, right? So, And we also remember when we were in grade school being sent to the principal's office or, you know, wait till mom gets home. So the perspective a good corporate investigator or anybody that does investigations is, way beyond interview skills to identify deceptive behaviors, uh, verbal and nonverbal. For example, um, if you ask me, did I take the laptop? And if I say I would never do that, um, that could be a true statement, but I still stole it. I didn't answer your question. Did you take it? I should say yes or no. So just before we get into that discussion, of identifying behaviors and conducting the questions and the discussion. It's understanding the impact you're going to have on people before they even get to the interview room where you're waiting for them, right? You have to understand that how you act in the first seconds of engagement can make a difference. If you're aloof or ignorant or um, arrogant or disrespectful, and you give them orders, come in, sit down right here, 
kind of thing. Uh, you know, I'm John from corporate security or I'm Brittany from the legal firm. You know, you don't even need to use that title at the front end, right? You want to uh, keep their psychological well-being and balance in mind because we want to treat others the way we want to be treated and that's with respect with clarity and fairness right the first thing they're gonna one of the things a lot of people are gonna come in there is how are they gonna treat me you know are they gonna be fair are they like the tv shows uh i've seen retired fbi people come in and flip their retired badge on the table and say read that you know you know who i am and that's just completely blows the, the 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 connection. And a lot of interviewers and courses talk about establishing rapport at the front end. A witness might tell you the truth, but they may know more. They could help you on your case. Or they may know details about issue A. You're there to discuss A. But they may have other know about serious violations or concerns, issue B or maybe issue C, which you always want to ask at the end of the interview. Is there anything else I should know about? And if you treat them the right way throughout that time that you're together, uh, more often than not, you're going to get additional information or at least the full information and their thoughts and perception. You know, if they say, you know, you may want to talk to to Rebecca or to Tom, they may know something. I'm, I'm not sure, but they may know. That's use That could be useful for your inquiry. So I would love to come back and talk about kind of my methodology of conducting uh, interviews with, with uh, a focus on, on compassion because in the 2000 plus interviews that I've done, you know, I've never had anybody get mad at me or threaten me or and that's another that ties into workplace violence investigations where someone with a grievance that could end up being terminated could have a secondary grievance of how the investigator treated him or her. And that could even overtake the original grievance that they have from a, a, a dignity component or an insult component of how I was treated. So you have a totally either make it worse or a different issue that you have to deal with now. So I, I'd love to talk about that more if you're interested. Yeah, John, I'm really glad that you said that because it's one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking is, is you're so right. I mean, it, how you approach the interview is going to dictate the kind, the quality of information, the kind of cooperation that you get from from the individual. But there's also the component of fairness, right, of wanting to make sure that your investigation is thorough, that it's fair, that it's unbiased. And right. the number of times I've heard from employees who are being interviewed, uh, either because they've been accused of harassment uh, or because they've been accused of some type of misconduct. And they say to me, you know, when I walked into that room, it was clear they had already made up their minds as yeah. to what had happened. And yeah. that removes any opportunity for a fair investigation, right? No matter, even if the investigation is done fairly and you do a good and thorough job, that person is going to feel that the investigation was tarnished from the very, very beginning. Um, so I would love to talk to you more about that. And again, I apologize so profusely for the tech issues. Right. Um, 
But I do want, before we end, I do want to make sure that we let everybody know how they can reach out to you because you offer so many excellent programs to support mm -hmm. both companies and individuals who are looking for, for guidance in, in this area. So how can people get in touch with you? Sure. My uh, company's name is Empathic Security Cultures with an S uh, at the end. It's not empathetic. It's empathic, which is an older word, which means the same thing. EmpathicSecurityCultures.com. It's there on the website. Or I'm on LinkedIn. You can plug in my name with my company name. I'd love to connect with folks. I post some things from time to time on uh, different perspectives where I, I mix in the neuroscience and the different perspectives. And um, I'd love to chat with anybody that has questions. I love speaking with groups and hopefully give folks uh, that are listening to this some insights or ways of thinking about something a little bit different. So thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, John. I think we're definitely going to have to have you back on the show because there's so many questions I didn't even get to ask you about. I didn't even get to ask you about your your work with, with the mental health initiatives. So I think we're going to have to drag you back here. <laughs> Anytime. Um, excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, for now, that's a wrap for season six, episode nine of Fire Away. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. Apologize to the audience for my tech issues. And thanks again to John for joining me today. It was such an interesting discussion. I really appreciated you, you coming on the show. Past episodes can be found on YouTube, on our website, and archived on Facebook. And if you like our page or subscribe to our channel, channel you will receive notifications when the episodes are live. I'll see you on our next episode, which will be airing on November 21st. I will be back hosting yet again. At Rudner Law, we want people to treat their employment relationships as legal relationships and make informed decisions rather than assumptions. I invite you to keep up to date on employment law issues by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and now on TikTok, liking our Facebook page and subscribing to our YouTube channel, and of course, also subscribing to our newsletter. But as we always say, none of that replaces legal advice tailored to your specific circumstances. If you think that you may need an employment lawyer, you probably do. So please feel free to reach out to us. Thanks to Rob, Rebecca, and Mark for helping put the show together, and we'll see you next time.